John 11. Again, saints, our focus will be verse 35. This is the word of the Lord. Give it your full attention. Now, a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary. It was the it was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, the sickness is not to end in death, but the glory of God, so that the son may be or son of God may be glorified by it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you and you are going there again. Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go, so that I may awake him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus has spoken of of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. I am glad for your sakes that he is that I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Therefore Thomas, who was called Dynamis, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, so that we may die with him. So when Jesus came, he found that he had that they had already been in the tomb, or he had already been in the tomb for four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. But Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would have not died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will grant you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believed that you are the Christ, the son of the God, even he who comes into the world. When she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him. And fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would have not died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, where have you laid him? 
They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from also dying? So Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But because of the people standing around, I say it, I said it so that they may believe that you have sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had been dead came forth, or died, came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Saints, this is the word of the Lord. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word, and now to the preaching of his word. You may be seated. When we come to John chapter 11, we have before us from a preacher's perspective at least five different sermons one could preach on. There are many things in John chapter 11 that when a preacher hears the word that or sees next, they get to preach John chapter 11. In many ways, their mouth is watering because there is so much meat in this one chapter alone. Everything from what it means to have faith in Christ. Everything to Christ's words in John chapter 11, verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Even to the great miraculous miracle of a raising of a dead man. In fact, when we come to John chapter 11, usually what is on the mind of the preacher is to preach whatever you can, but get to when the stone is rolled away. Usually that is the main focus of John chapter 11. But saints, for our moment or for our time this morning, Yes, we will consider a little bit of the raising of Lazarus. But more so this morning, I want us to consider verse 35 of our text. And that is this Mount Everest of verse. This this verse where we must, in many ways, take off our shoes and approach it with, with holy silence and reverence. Verse 35 of our text says, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Saints, in this verse here, which is so-called the shortest verse in the Bible, contains as much theology in this two words alone that could in many ways drown an elephant. There, There is so much meat, as if John chapter 11 didn't have enough meat as it is, but in this verse here, Jesus wept. 
There's so much meat for us to chew on and digest. So this morning, saints, we want to consider Jesus and his tears. The tears of our Savior. At the closing of the Holy Scriptures, where God would no longer be inspiring men to pen his words. The early church was left with a myriad of questions. And saints, the topic of discussion that seemed to dominate the early church was the person of Jesus Christ. What do we do with the biblical account of Jesus Christ? How is it that God became man? How does one person possess two natures? Or the question that pertains to our text this morning, how human is Jesus Christ? How human is Jesus Christ? The opening of St. John's Gospel tells us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What we have in this glorious prologue to St. John's Gospel is John quickly identifies that Jesus Christ is truly God. Jesus Christ is truly God. But then in verse 14, something interesting happens, or rather is said. St. John says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now what an amazing statement that is. That same word who was with God and is God of verse 1. St. John says in verse 14, became flesh and dwelt among us. The same one who is God. Now in verse 14, John's saying, is man. So back to the question, congregation. How human is Jesus Christ? Or we can even say this, how human is God? How human is God? We know from Holy Writ that the word became flesh, but how fleshly did God become? We read that he dwelt among us, but how near did he come toward us? Well, the answer to such questions, saints, lies in verse 35 of our text. Jesus wept. How human is God? Jesus wept. How close did God come and dwell among us? Jesus wept. And those two words, saints, The whole mystery of salvation is displayed. It is those two words where the mystery of Christ's person is put on full display. It is in those two words where the infinite wisdom of God in the salvation of man is visibly seen that this God who is at an infinite distance from us wept in the incarnate person of Jesus Christ. And friends, this leads us to our first point, and that is the true humanity of Christ. 
the true humanity of Christ. In the fourth century, the great church father, Gregory of Nazianzus, says this concerning our Lord, that which is not taken up is not healed. That which is not taken up is not healed. And this great insight was to combat the heresy of what's called Apollinarianism. And Apollinarianism essentially is to say that when God became man, God took on all of what it means to be man except a human mind. Jesus didn't have a human mind. He had a divine mind. And saints, this is what makes St. Gregory's statement so helpful. For if God did not draw to himself and become a complete and true human being, then our salvation is incomplete. If God did not draw to himself and become a true human being, then humanity is not saved. Again, that which is not assumed is not healed. If Christ has not assumed all of who you are, then all of your faculty, saints, is not healed. So when Christ assumes the human mind, he's doing so to heal your mind. In assuming a human will, he does so to heal your will. In assuming a heart, a human heart, he does so to heal your sinful heart. In order for man to be fully redeemed from head to foot, from our minds to our passions to our wills, God must assume all of what it means for humans to be human. God must assume all of what it means to be us in order to save us. And friends, in our text this morning, saints, we see how deep into the marrow and fiber of who we are that God became. How far did God sink himself down into humanity? How far, or rather, can we truly say that Jesus Christ is bone of our bone, flesh of our flesh? Can we say that? Can we say that Christ is our elder brother? Is that even a true statement? Friends, the answer again is contained in verse 35. Jesus wept. That is how far into your bone marrow that Christ became. Jesus wept. Congregation, this verse teaches us This one verse teaches us that it wasn't enough for the eternal son to assume a human body. That wasn't enough. It wasn't enough for him to assume a human mind. That wasn't enough. It wasn't enough for him to give off the appearance of being a man. The saints, we see that not only did God take on a human body, not only did God take on a human will, assume a human mind, But also we see that God assumed human emotions. God took on human passions. Now, why is this true so remarkable? What's the big deal? Human emotions. It's so natural to us, right? But saints, consider who our God is. It is only in the backdrop of who our God is that when you read verse 35, Jesus wept. It is 
it seems the most contradictory of statements. Because in light of who our God is, God doesn't weep. In light of who our God is, God is unchanging. In light of who our God is, God cannot be forced, either externally or internally, moved in any sort of way to undergo a passion of pain. God can't, God doesn't cry. He doesn't have pain. Passions don't come upon God like passions and our emotions come upon us. The saints, again, this is the mystery of the incarnation. That when God assumes a human flesh, the mystery of the incarnation is this, that when God assumes a human flesh, he assumes that which is contrary to his nature. When God becomes man, he assumes a nature that is contrary to his very own. To do something that he in himself cannot do. But in the incarnation, saints, the God who cannot suffer, who is unable to suffer, now as man suffers. The God who does not change, now as man changes. The God who doesn't undergo sadness and shed tears, now at the death of his friend, undergoes sadness and sheds tears. This is the mystery of the person of Christ. Again, in no way, shape, or form, when Christ dies, is he dying as God. He, of course, dying as man. But it's still in his one person. It is still, in many ways, as the church fathers would say, it is God shedding tears. It is God who dies on the cross for us. And what a marvel this is, saints. It is here, congregation, where we are to stop and we are to behold our Christ. We are to stop and behold our Christ, saints. Look, congregation. I don't know if you've thought of this in a long time, but marvel, look and see how far into our world the eternal Son came and became. This is how far He came and became. That He sheds tears. That He really was truly human. Look at the extreme humiliation of God. And this was indeed, in every sense of the word, a humiliation of God. From being born of a virgin to living a life under the law, to even possessing human emotions. That is a humiliation of God. As one theologian says rightly, the Son of God could adopt the human nature and in it let his full divine majesty shine. In other words, if God so chose, he could, when he assumed a humanity, that humanity could be elevated in such a way that it would share in the properties of his divinity. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus does not allow his divinity in any way, shape, or form creep into his humanity. But he lives as a true human being. He lives as one of us. Jesus Christ doesn't cheat his way to the cross. 
He lives just as we lived. He truly became one of us. He assumes all of our weaknesses and our frailties in order to live in complete solidarity with us. He says, if I'm going to become one of them, I'm going to be and live like one of them. And that's what God did, saints, for you. He actually and really became man. Now, what's the reason for Christ's tears then? Why is he crying? Which leads to our second point, and that is the tears of Christ. The tears of Christ. And this gets us into the context of the chapter. In the opening chapter, we are immediately introduced to three persons. Lazarus, who is sick, and his sisters, Mary and Martha. In verse 2 through 6, word is sent to Jesus that his friend Lazarus is sick. And because of this, Jesus chose to stay where he was at two days longer. Now, that's a puzzling decision from Christ, is it not? He just hears that his friend Lazarus is sick. But based upon hearing that, he doesn't jump at the request to go see Lazarus. But rather... He stays an extra two days where he currently was. You would think that if someone asked, told you, hey, the friend whom you love is sick, you would say, okay, I'm going to pack my bags. I'm going to leave tonight. Rather, Jesus stays two extra days where he was. He doesn't immediately go and see Lazarus. It's almost as if Christ ensured by staying an extra two days, that when he arrives to see his friend Lazarus, that Lazarus is going to most assuredly be dead. Him staying an extra two days ensured that Lazarus would be dead when Christ went to see him. And saints, we can stop here and take notes. That even when we're going in the most, even in the midst of the most dire situation, and we need God right there and then, God is still not on our own timetable. God's on his own time. God does not pick up his bags as soon as you call him. But God works everything according to his own will and good pleasure. And we see that here. That Christ didn't, he didn't jump when to go see Lazarus. And God doesn't jump when we tell him to jump. God will come through, but on his own time and not on your saints. We pick up the story in verse 20. The Lord has decided to go to Judea. The disciples are saying to them, why are we going back to Judea? We almost got killed. What's the purpose of this? And Christ says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. We're going to awake him. Even this, the psychology of how Christ enters and is thinking about Lazarus. That when the world around Lazarus is in despair, Christ is saying he's just fallen asleep. But he will rise again. The disciples are saying, why are we going to Judea? Thomas says, well, let's go so we can die with him. And as he arrives, Martha greets him saying, Martha, saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would have not died. Mary, or Martha, echoes the words of Mary as Mary comes to see Christ in verse 32. 
Lord, if you have been here, my brother would have not died. Saints, from the words of Mary and Martha, we can get a sense of the atmosphere as Christ arrives. We can get a sense of the feeling in the air as Christ arrives. Verse 31 says that the Jews were consoling Mary. The people are in mourning. As the Lord arrives and saints, quite honestly, they have every right to be in mourning. Lazarus, who was a friend, Lazarus, who was a brother, is now dead. And many of you, congregation, many of you know what it feels like to arrive at a place of mourning. Many of you know what it feels like to walk into a building when death is still freshly new. There are many, a mix of emotions that can be seen throughout the room, is there not? Some are silent. Some are angry. Some are crying in anguish. In fact, this is what we see in verse 33. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with also weeping, this weeping here, friends, that's being described is not the weeping that you and I do when we watch, you know, the ending of Titanic or something, of a sad movie. That's not that type of weeping where we just shed a tear. We're in, but rather, this is a weeping of anguish. This is the weeping that we do when we're in our showers, when we don't want no one to hear us, or we, we push ourselves, our heads into a pillow. It is that type of weeping. These saints are loud and deeply hurt tears that Christ is entering into. And when Jesus sees that, when he sees how much pain and sorrow these people have undergone, verse 33 says, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. When Jesus sees how much pain, when he hears the crying, when he she sees the tears flowing from a myriad of people's eyes, it says that he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Now there's two reasons why our Lord was moved in spirit. Two reasons. The first reason was the compassion that he had for his friends. The compassion that he had for his friends. We get an insight into the relationship that our Lord had with Lazarus in verse 3. The sisters send word to Jesus about Lazarus' sickness and notice what they say. Lord, behold, he who you love is sick. He whom you love is sick. Here we read of a special love that Christ had for Lazarus and his two sisters. The special love. They, they qualify Lazarus' relationship with Christ with love. The one whom you love is sick. And this love for Lazarus is even made evident by the sisters sending someone to Jesus rather than sending themselves. The sisters Mary and Martha don't go and visit Jesus and tell him about Lazarus' death, but rather they send someone else to go see Lazarus, or to go to Jesus and tell Lazarus, to tell of Lazarus' sickness. This fact speaks to the confidence that the sisters had in Christ, that they knew that Jesus loved Lazarus. And when Christ heard of Lazarus and his sickness, because of the great love that Christ had for Lazarus, he will go to him. 
and based upon his love for his friends, based upon the sadness and the exceedingly painful tears that he sees being shed, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. Oh, saints, what a great love Christ must have had for Lazarus. What a great love that Christ must have had for Lazarus. Think of all the things that Christ has seen in his earthly life. Many times the Bible tells us that when he sees either blind people, crippled people, people who are in need, it says that he has compassion. But very rarely does it say that he was moved and troubled in spirit. Christ here, it says, was moved and troubled in spirit based upon the death of his friend and the outpouring of emotion that he sees from the death of his friend. And saints, here is where we see an example of the way in which Christ lived his life. Our Christ, saints, is not a cold or distant God, but rather he is a compassionate Savior. He's not some stoic, unmoved by what's going on around him. But we see that the God who was made flesh not only knows the pains of his people, but feels the self-same pains of his people. It's not enough for him to just know that you're in pain, but rather he undergoes your pain. He undergoes your sorrow. He underwent the sorrow of the people. Oh, what great love that Christ must have had for Lazarus. We can even say, what great love that Christ has for you. We are to think that we are removed or divorced from this great love. We'll talk about that in a minute. But congregation, there's another reason why our Savior was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Along with Christ having compassion, we also see that he burned with anger. He burned with anger. And that's what this word means, moved in spirit and troubled. It means that Christ was burning with anger. Burning with anger. There was a, even in Christ at this moment, there was a mix of emotions that's happening in Christ. It means that Christ was burning with anger. But why was the Lord angry? Why was our Lord angry? Well, saints, consider what he's seeing. Consider what Christ is seeing. Consider what he walks into. As Christ looks at the people mourning over Lazarus, he doesn't just see Mary and Martha. He doesn't just see the Jews weeping and mourning over Lazarus. He doesn't just see a cave and a stone that's covering up his friend Lazarus. He doesn't even really see Lazarus in there, but rather when Christ steps into this scene, what he sees is the Garden of Eden. What he sees is the weakness of Adam and Eve. What he sees is that lying serpent called Satan. The words of the serpent, has God really said, you should not eat from any tree of the garden? It must have been, it must have been speaking to him from the tomb of Lazarus. Because saints, why is Lazarus dead? Because of sin. 
Why is Lazarus in that tomb? Because of sin. Because of the weakness of Adam and Eve. Because of that liar, Satan. What caused the death of his friend Lazarus, saints? It was sin. It was what Adam cursed humanity. It was what Adam brought upon us. And as the Lord of creation, the Lord of creation, the one who made all things, when he looks at what sin has done to his creation, this is what sin has done. He burns with anger. Sort of like if you made something that is the highest pinnacle and the very apex of all the things you've ever made being shattered to pieces. That is what Christ is seeing. Look how far sin extended beyond the borders and boundaries of Eden. It touches every single man. It touches every single person. What's the great end goal of sin? Death. That's the, that's the end game for sin, saints. That's what sin wants to do to you, death, because once you die, there is no coming back. And Christ says and sees what his creation, Adam, has done to his subsequent creation, even his friend whom he loved, Lazarus. What has done to him? Friends, this is why death is such a hard and bitter pill for us to swallow. Not because we lose someone whom we love, which indeed we do, but because we know inherently that death is not natural. Death is not natural. We were not meant to be separated in body and soul. What was promised to Adam? What was promised to Adam? Yes, if you disobey death, but it was life. Adam was to give to us life. He was to preserve our bodies, not separate our bodies. We were meant, saints, to live forever. And as all these things are running through the mind of Christ, verse 35 says, Jesus wept. As all these things are running through the mind of Christ, my friend is gone. Look at what sin has done to my friend and to my friends. From the very passions of his soul, he undergoes tears. Jesus, the God of heaven and earth, cried, wept. It's quite interesting, is it not, saints, that the scripture never records for us that Jesus laughed, but frequently it tells us that Jesus wept. Frequently it tells us that Jesus wept. Again, this speaks to how far our God sank himself into humanity. How human is God, saints? He wept. That's how human Jesus Christ 
became. He wept. These tears are quite puzzling, are they not? It's quite strange that Jesus crying. For Jesus knew that he would raise his friend Lazarus from the dead. So why would he be crying? He knows that his friend Lazarus is going to rise from the dead because he himself is going to raise him from the dead. So what's the purpose of him crying? In fact, this is what he tells the disciples in verse 11. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. I'm going so I can awake him from sleep. Jesus, from the very moment he picked up his bags to go to Judea, knew exactly what his purpose was, and that was to raise Lazarus from the dead. So if that's the purpose, if he knew that he was going to do it, do that. If he most assuredly knows he's going to do that, then why is he crying? The answer, saints, is that although pain, although it may be temporary, pain is still present. And saints, Mary and Martha's present pain called for present sympathy. Mary and Martha's present pain called for present sympathy. For apathy, the lack of feeling is not a virtue. Don't ever believe the lie that says, real men don't cry. Our big girls don't shed tears. The idea of being strong by not showing emotion is actually not a strong person. Hiding away the thing that we don't want the world to see. Because in fear of being seen as weak, that's not strength. In fact, what's the, what's the thing that gets us most interested when we hear of someone crying? Because we view crying as weakness. But cry, but friends, at this moment, the very thing that we as a society tends to hide from the world, Jesus Christ exposes before the world. Why? Because he owed Lazarus his tears. Why? Because sin and what, and what Adam has done to a human race warranted Christ's tears. That is why. Christ is not a mere spectator, saints. But he unites his tears with the tears of others. He sees the tears of the people and he says, here, here are my tears as well. Think of our Lord, saints. Although he knew that he was going to raise his friend, that did not stop him from weeping over his friend. Although he knew that he was going to raise his friend, he was no coward. But he shed tears over his friend. That did not stop him from giving to his friend the honor of his tears. Congregation, this is not to say that it's a virtuous thing to cry. That we are to leave here and Cry every moment we can. You are not a more godly person by just crying. And you're not less of a person. But rather at every occasion. At every occasion. We should show the proper emotion. We should show proper emotion. Even think of Christ's own tears, saints. Christ's own tears and his emotions, theologians would call their propassions. 
There are passions that are always in line with reason. And reason always in line with God. You see, the people are in anguish and they're crying in anguish. But they're crying in anguish because they're crying in despair. They're crying without no hope. Christ does not cry in despair. He does not cry as someone without hope. But it was a fitting thing to cry. It was a right thing to cry. And here we see our Lord giving to us exactly what St. Paul says in Romans 12. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Christ here is the great model of that, is he not? Weeping with those who wept. Not saying that I am going not to weep so that my strength somehow can be transferred over to you and my, you know, non-dry eyes can be transferred over to your wet eyes, but rather I'm going to unite my tears with your tears. And here are Christ's models, what it means to be a perfect, a perfect human. What it means to be authentically human. This leads to our final point. And that is the raising of a friend. The raising of a friend. Verse 38 through 44. So Jesus again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave. And a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench and he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, do not say to you that if you believe you will see the glory of God. So they removed the stone. Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you. You have heard me. But I knew that you always hear me. Nevertheless, because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe you sent me. And he said these things and cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Out came the man who had died. Bound hard with foot uh, and foot, uh, hand and foot with wrappings. And his face was wrapped around with the cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. This miracle, saints, is quite possibly the greatest miracle that Christ performed in his earthly ministry. The New Testament records three of these resurrection miracles. The rising of a widow's son. The rising of Jairus' daughter and the rising of Lazarus. And it's interesting that each of these three resurrection miracles reports the dead person in a different stage of death. In a different stage of death. When Lazarus raises Jairus' daughter to life, she's still in bed because she's only died a few hours earlier. The widow's son lies in an open coffin on his way to his grave when Jesus performs the miracle of rising from the dead. But is this miracle? It is the rising of Lazarus that shows the great power of our Christ. For Lazarus was not newly dead like Jairus' daughter. Lazarus was not on his way to be buried like the widow's son. But Lazarus is already dead. He's already in the grave. In fact, he's been dead and in the grave 
four days. In fact, the sisters say there's a stench if you raise him from the dead. Here we see the power of our Christ. That there is no circumstance in this life that constrains and controls and delimits the power of God. No matter if someone's newly dead or someone's been dead for a multitude of years, which will happen with you one day, saints, if the Lord chooses to come back in the next 500 years. It does not matter when one dies, for God will raise up even bones, even ashes. Lazarus has already been gone. He's already been dead for four days. And this is what makes the rising of Lazarus so remarkable. This is where we see, yes, the humanity of Christ on display. But this is where we see the God-man on display. Where we don't just see the humanity and the sacred heart of Christ on display. Where we see the power of God on display. How do we do that? How do we see that? Because at the very moment when Jesus Christ is shedding tears, is the very self-same moment when he's preserving the body of his friend Lazarus in the grave. The same moment where he's shedding tears over his friend, at the same moment he's preserving his friend's body from undergoing decay. Isn't that remarkable? Think of the cross as well. The same nails that are on his hands, he's upholding those nails in his hands. The thieves who are next to him, who are mocking him, he's putting that motion to mock him into action. The moment he's crying out, in the moment when everyone's crying out, what they don't see, what they don't see is that in that cave, the one who is weeping is the same one who's preserving, who's upholding his friend. He will not let his friend go. Even when the world around has let Lazarus go. Christ, even in death, never let go of the hand of Lazarus. Preserve the body of Lazarus. And as Lazarus comes out of the cave, we have before us a picture of our, own resur- of our own Lord's resurrection. And many people want to say that. Yes, it's a picture. Look at this great picture of our Lord's resurrection. It definitely is. But saints, there is a great and vast difference. There is a great and vast difference between Lazarus' resurrection and Christ's resurrection. And the only similarity is merely the event itself of walking out of a tomb. But there is a vast, vast difference when Lazarus was raised from the dead, is there anything that changed? Since the only thing that changed was merely an extension of Lazarus' earthly life. That's all that changed. He was given and granted an extension in his life. But nothing about Lazarus inherently changed. Nothing about him changed. Lazarus still bore the curse of Adam's fall. He still was under the curse of Adam. Because one day, Lazarus will die again. 
Lazarus was and will die again. But saints, when Christ was raised, when Jesus Christ was raised, he did not bear the curse of Adam's fall. When Jesus Christ was raised, he was not raised only to die again. Christ's resurrection was not an extension of his earthly life, or rather, Christ's resurrection was the inauguration. It was the beginning of heaven, of a new age, of a heavenly age. When Christ was raised, Christ was raised without the possibility of ever dying again. Lazarus will die again. Christ will live forever. That's the difference. Christ's resurrection, saints, is the beginning of his heavenly life. And saints, likewise with you. Likewise with you. Yes, we can marvel at Lazarus' resurrection, saints. But congregation, our resurrection will far exceedingly surpass Lazarus' resurrection. In fact, when you are raised from the dead, Lazarus will be right next to you. Your resurrection will also be Lazarus' resurrection. The final resurrection. The telos of creation. To be raised, whole body, enjoying God. Our resurrection saints, we will not bear the man of dust. We will leave sin in the grave. We will live, live, uh, leave sins, Adam's curse in the grave. And just like Christ, we will leave our linen cloths in the grave. But we will be suited and we will be transfigured into the man of heaven. We will be like Jesus Christ, not like Adam, but we will be like our champion savior, Jesus Christ. Saints, this account of our Christ's life is such great value to our spiritual souls. But saints, we must not think that this is the last time that our Lord would shed tears. This is not the last time our Lord would shed tears. This is not the last time water will flow from our Christ's eyes. For the next time our Christ will shed tears will not be for one person the next time Christ will shed tears will be for the whole world. The next time water flows from our Christ's eyes will not be just for a friend who has died, but it will be for a multitude of people who are dying. The next time our Christ will shed tears will not be because of one man's death, but the next time our Christ will shed tears will be over his own death. He will cry over his own death. And these tears will not be alike into the tears that he shed at the graveside of Lazarus. He will not groan in spirit and merely a tear will come from his eye, but rather these tears will be alike into Mary and Martha's. This is what the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 5-7. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears. To the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. He offers up a sacrifice to the Father with loud crying and tears. 
saints, as you contemplate the saving work of Christ, and we think about what he's done in living a life of obedience unto God for us, dying the death and offering to the Father a perfect sacrificial offering, rising from the dead, ascending to the right of the Father, saints, and never undermine the tears of Christ. For saints, you are saved by the tears of Christ. You are saved by the tears of Christ. It was Christ's tears that inspired an inward flame of love for His people. So much so that He wept over the sins of His people. It was Christ's tears that moved Him to say at His most dire moment, yet not my will, but yours be done. It was Christ's tears over the sins of His people that carried Him up Golgotha's heel. Because in those tears, saints, contains the most perfect love for God and the most perfect love for His people. But ultimately, saints, why does Christ shed tears? Why does He shed tears? Christ shed tears in order so that you may not shed tears. Christ sheds tears to wipe away your tears forever. Christ sheds tears so that one day water will never flow from your eye again, that you will never undergo sadness, you will never undergo pain. Let us close with the words of St. John in chapter 2 of Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there was no longer sea. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among the people, and he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will be no longer any death. There will be no longer any mourning, or crying, or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Let's pray.